From Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. Uh, so excited for today's interview. I had a just fantastic conversation with a guy I've gotten to know this past year. Uh, Reed Arvin produced uh, all but one of Rich Mullins' records. Um, some of you guys know, we've talked about this during the Andrew Peterson episode of last season, but uh, Rich Mullins was a huge influence uh, for me and a bunch of my friends. And Reed shaped all those records. And so as a songwriter, as a producer... Uh, I've, I've long studied his work on those projects. And um, well, that's, so it's fun to get to hear some stories about that. Um, he also, he left that job and then became a super successful novelist. And now he's teaching at Lipscomb University down the road here in Nashville. There's just some amazing stories here. Reed is, um, he is not scared to just tell you what he thinks, man. And I love that about him. Uh, there's an honesty uh to him that is refreshing. And um, yeah, so we got to go and sit in a little office in his house and just ask him questions that I'd wanted to ask for like 20 years. So what a treat. You know, often we think, or at least I think that, you know, transitions in life, careers, specifically career transitions are usually dictated by it's time for me to move on, or someone else says, hey, you're done here, it's time for you to move on. Um, But Reed talks a lot in this conversation about health, and that's when our bodies say, it's time to move on. And I think there's a lot to be explored there that I have had the luxury of not having to explore. And that tells me it's something I need to spend more time thinking about and preparing for. And so I really appreciate Reed's honesty in sharing that as well. So um, what a fascinating conversation uh, from a fascinating dude. Can't wait for you to hear from Reed Arvin. Hey friends, it's almost Christmas and you need to get gifts for those music lovers in your life. And I've got the thing for you. Blind Tiger Record Club. They're a vinyl record subscription box service that delivers great vinyl to your door each month. They're the only club that sends you music from the genre you choose. Rock, alternative, singer-songwriter. All their vinyl are new and sealed, full-length 12-inch records from artists of today. They've got double albums, 180 gram, color variant, hard-to-find imports. Super cool stuff. They've also got an online record store that has tons of great music, plus all sorts of great merch, t-shirts, hats, record players. I actually have one of the t-shirts, and I kid you not, people have stopped me on the street and said, dude, that's a cool shirt. I said, thanks, I got it from Blind Tiger Record Club. I didn't say that, but the, the first part of that conversation happened. I said thanks, and then kept walking and felt cool by myself. But these would make great Christmas presents uh, for those music lovers in your life. So go to blindtigerrecordclub.com, check out the store and become a member today. Uh, subscription plans start at $25.99 a month, but if you're a listener of this podcast, which you are, you can get the first month for half off uh, by using the coupon code THEPIVOT, all one word, all caps, at checkout. Please go to blindtigerrecordclub.com. Your vinyl, your choice. Hot chicken isn't for the faint of heart. Neither is being a worship leader. So come and be taught and encouraged at the National Worship Leader Conference happening here in Nashville, May 7th through 9th. You can find them on Instagram at worship.leader or visit worshipleader.com. The Pivot is also brought to you by New College Franklin. New College Franklin is a four-year Christian liberal arts college in Franklin, Tennessee, dedicated to excellent academics and a rich community. They offer a unique opportunity to become part of a learning family that is focused on educating the whole person. To learn more, visit newcollegefranklin.org. When I told you about this podcast, you immediately looked at me and quoted a Billy Crockett lyric. Yes, that's what, right. What, can you? What was that? Actually, it's a Billy Crockett song, but the lyricist is a guy named um, Milton Cunningham. Okay who was writing with him at the time. And uh, Milton is now a chef 
And uh, but the lyric was, uh, "What makes the great ones anyway? You find your one thing, you get up and do it again today. I swear they are not giving that stuff away." And the song was written about the <clears throat> the home run competition between um, uh, those two baseball players who both ended up getting doing steroids, but at the time, <laughs> nobody knew. And it was galvanized, it galvanized the country. Sammy Sosa and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Yeah, yeah. Barry Bonds? Barry, Barry Bonds. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Why do I know this? Yeah, well, it was a big deal. And um, so they wrote this song, um, and it was and that, that lyric stuck with me hmm. because you wonder, particularly if you make a big curve in your life, you do leave behind the long, straight path to whatever competence you could have had if you had just stayed doing that thing. Yeah. And that song is that lyric has always struck me as kind of haunting in mm. that respect. You know, because I was a, a fairly good musician, and I wonder, well, you know, when I stepped away from that, I wonder, well, how good could I have gotten? I don't know. Mm. I'll never know. But that wasn't my path, so. Huh. Well, that's what I want to. I'm curious about this because you've had, you've had two sort of dream careers. Both you got to do things that lots of people would love to do. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And you were very successful at both of them. Okay. And you walked away from both of them. Well, I got. I didn't walk away from one of them. I limped away from one. <laughs> I was well, carried yeah. in an ambulance away from oh. one. I walked away from one. Yeah. So they're well, not the same experience. <laughs> Well, I'd love to hear about both of those. Let's start with music. Yeah. So you started, what I know is that you started playing for Amy Grant, but I'm sure you didn't start just, <laughs> hey, welcome to Nashville. Can I play with Amy Grant? No, I, the the seminal moments for me as a musician were um, a couple. One was going to the University of North Texas, which has such a big music school, music program. And I had been a kind of a big fish in a little pond at Baylor. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was hot stuff, you know. And I went up to North Texas and discovered that I was nowhere. I had a tremendous amount of work to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember going in, they, they had these auditions, and, um, you know, I, I stepped into the bathroom right before my audition because, you know, you have that nervous, got to go. Yeah. And there was, and I heard in one of the stalls, somebody playing scales on guitar. And I remember thinking, I don't know, I wonder if he went in there to be just a little <laughs> moment of solitude, you know, just to kind of clear his mind. And then I heard it flush. Oh, man. That's where he was at, was just, it does not stop. Does not stop. <laughs> and that's when I thought, wow, I, I have been under the assumption that I was talented and that that would be sufficient. And so that was a turning point where I realized I either have to really recalibrate what it meant to do this as work or do something else. Hmm. And so that was the first the first big moment. And then the next big moment was going to the University of Miami for graduate school, which was strictly because I didn't want the fun to stop. I had so much fun in college. Oh, my gosh. It, by the way, tuition was four dollars an hour. <laughs> so what would that what would that make a semester? Well, there was a minimum seventy five dollars. You couldn't take two courses for eight bucks. <laughs> seventy five dollars. That's amazing. It was amazing, and I I thought that that could not possibly be true. But I went back and looked, and they've digitized all the original catalogs. So that you can actually go back, University of North Texas, whatever it was, 1978 or whatever it was, and you can actually see the fee structure. And it was $4 an hour. So it was so much fun. And it, it you could d- explore anything. Yeah. You could w- ask any question because it just wasn't expensive to ask. Yeah. Then going to North Texas, you know, UNT was very jazz oriented, as was I, which proved to be a blessing and a curse. Hmm. When I moved to Nashville, yeah. it was tremendously helpful and tremendously harmful. 
How's, uh, um, well, we'll get back to that. Uh, yeah, so then going to Miami where jazz was really not a thing. It was all about either the various forms of Caribbean music or pop. Hmm. And so that opened my mind. Hmm. Because for the first time, I was in a band where I was the only white guy. I was in a reggae band where the drummer's name on his driver's license was last name Green's top first name Turnip. No. Turnip Green's. Birth name. Yeah. Turnip Green's. That's a guy who's got a trajectory in life. Yeah. And that's a gig that doesn't start till 10.30 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? At the, at the earliest. Yeah. And I was in a salsa band with a guy named Willie Chidino uh, in a club called Scandals, appropriately named. Oh, that's wonderful. And just playing salsa at burn level for four or five hours. <laughs> and, and, and one night driving home and seeing a shooting. What? Yeah, it just, you just, I was a kid from a cattle ranch in Kansas, never been anywhere, never seen anything. And so this just blew my mind, playing this music, um, culturally, you know, encountering all this different stuff. It was fabulous. And then getting, realizing I'm either going to make, I was working in a Latin band as a conductor, traveling around South America. And I had a chance to come to Nashville, and I realized I was even dating a girl who spoke Spanish. And I realized I'm either going to make that my life, or I'm not. I'm either a tourist here, and this has been fabulous, but it's time to go. Yeah. Or I'm never going to leave this life, and I'm going. This is going to be my world now. And so when I had a chance to come to Nashville to play with Amy, I thought this is my ticket out. This is my way of putting a period on that time of my life and going, that was fantastic, but it's not my life. So it almost didn't matter what I was going to find here. Hmm. I, I just knew I was ready to go. So how long had you been traveling in South America? A couple of years. How'd you get that gig? Oh, it's just it's too long a story. <laughs> so how'd you get the gig with Amy? I played on a commercial, a television commercial at uh, Criteria Studios, which are these real famous studios down there. And the producer of the commercial was a good friend of one of Amy's managers, Mike Blanton. And he told Mike Blanton about me. And I must have made an impression. I don't know. And Mike Blanton called me on the phone and said, we're getting ready to do a tour. Would you be interested in coming up and playing keyboards behind Michael Smith's going to play piano and you can be the synth guy? I didn't know who Michael Smith was. And I had a vague awareness of Amy Grant. This was the beginning of their careers, right? No. Well, it was the beginning of Michael's. Okay. Amy had already done Age to Age. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she had already sold. uh, That was like a platinum record. So she... Yeah, so she already had a thing. And I knew that my roommate had a big crush on her. I think half of America had a big crush. Yeah, he had a big crush on her. And I think he sent her a fan letter that was really embarrassing in retrospect. (laughs) But I didn't really know anything. I wasn't listening to Christian music. I was listening to fusion, salsa, pop. Uh, Christian music was a non-entity in my mind. So I came up to do a tour and, and I thought it was Nashville that really convinced me because I did the tour. And then I realized, okay, I'm not going to live in Miami, which means I'm either going to live here, New York, or L.A. Yeah. New York scared the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. I was not ready to go to New York. L.A. seemed possible because I knew a lot of people who had done it. Yeah. New York, too, but just the city was too intimidating for me. L.A. seemed possible, but Nashville just felt so much more doable. And then I knew people already. Instantly I knew cuz Amy had a world. Yeah. It's a it was a community, excuse me, a community of people. So <clears throat> suddenly I was in that community. No. So I thought, god, I'm going to go to LA and start over. Yeah, suddenly I was playing on records and I was you know, why would I want to, you know, I didn't know much, but I knew it was that that was kismet. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did you work with Amy? I mean, you played with her for quite a while. Yeah, three and a half years. Okay. Um, And I played with Michael, too. Um, And then when Michael left and did his own thing, I kind of became, took his place in the band. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and they brought in another guy to play synthesizers. Um, this was before they were running tracks. Well, right. we didn't run tracks, but we had a big commitment to uh, sampled uh, background vocals and various parts. And in fact, the, one of the things that impressed me was uh, a couple of bands had tried to hire me away. And uh, I, I won't say who it was, but um, at this time, Brown Bannister was really, who was her producer, he made, he did one of the coolest things. He was such so committed to professionalism. And we were making some samples of, uh, I think they were, were doing background vocals, and a few things that just couldn't be done live. Mm-hmm. And we, at that time, were using the Clare Brothers as a sound reinforcement live. And he got two Clare Brothers, the big, I can't remember what they call them, cubes or squares, whatever mm-hmm. they are, and brought them into the studio. They were so enormous. I have no idea how they even got them in there. And he, but this was what was cool. He did the sampling on those speakers, listening on those speakers. So it would sound right. So it would sound right on that PA. That's and I thought, damn, that is so hardcore. (laughs) And I loved that. I absolutely loved that. And I thought, I don't care. Somebody had offered me considerably more money, and I just thought, I don't care. I. This is so tuned into being. To trying to do something great. Yeah. That's where I want to be. Hmm. I never forgot that. He, as a matter of fact, there's something about Brown, and now his office is directly below mine at Lipscomb, so I see him all the time. And yeah. I had a chance to tell him, you know, there's something about him where you do your best work, but you can't figure out why. Yeah. And, and I played on a session with him for the first time. And later I thought, well, that's about as good as I've done. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Yeah. He there's has that energy. Some magical man. energy. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah. It's, it, you're probably the 800th person who mm-hmm. I've heard say that same thing about Brown. Yeah, yeah. that's his gift. Yeah, it's getting the most out of people, which makes him a great producer. Yeah. But you are also a great and legendary producer. Well, so how you. did you, what led from you playing keys for aiming to producing records again mike blanton to whom i owe much um rich mullins had come into the picture as a writer Mm -hmm. and he'd gotten some cuts with amy co-writing and um unbeknownst to me there was this thinking that maybe he had a record in him himself and so i met him in cincinnati but i didn't know where he was living at the time but i didn't think anything of it he was just standing around backstage. I shook his hand. That was it. Um, and then later, Mike came to me and said, do you think you could produce a record on him? And, you know, you just have those moments where you realize, well, you're supposed to say yes now. It doesn't matter if you have any idea if this is true or not. <laughs> Had you so, produced a record before? No, no. And, I, and, and so it was his first record and my first record. Unbelievable. And I just said, uh, yes. And then he get quoted a figure. He said, well, could you do it for this? I said, yes. Immediately. And so... Uh, then came the suffering, you know, <laughs> of how to do it. And, of course, it sucked but because uh, he didn't know what he was doing. But I think the thinking of it was that um, we were both fundamentally a couple of eggheads. Hmm. And uh, he, Rich was very literate. And as compared to the average session musician, I don't want to make more of this than it is. But as compared to the average session musician, I probably, he probably perceived me as more literate as well. Sure. I mean, I had a, a, a broader and more complete education, for example. I had yeah. a, been to graduate school. And I could sit down and talk to Rich about things other than music. And I think he felt like he needed somebody that could sort of talk his language and be yeah. taken seriously by him. That was enormously overthinking it on his part, I think. But So we made a record that didn't cost very much and didn't sell very many and wasn't very good. And then we made another record that was a little <laughs> bit better, cost less, and sold fewer. And so, obviously, today that would have been hit. Yeah. But this was what, mid-80s? Yeah, whatever it was. So back then, and also Mike had a lot of confidence. Yeah. Because he was having an extraordinary amount of success. 
So he, which didn't last forever either because it never does. Yeah. It's not, no fault of his. And so uh, he had enormous confidence in his insight. And so he just said, well, let's, let's do it again. And by then gave us a little bit more money. And that record was really tortured because of a lot of technical problems. The backing came off the tape. It was an unbelievable experience that I won't bore whoever's listening to to this with. But all was forgiven because it had the song Awesome God on it. Yeah. Which completely changed both of our lives. How so? Well, it made Rich's career real. And it it, it meant that we would make more records. And it bought us the time to continue to get better. Hmm. And because even that record is not very good, but we were developing a language together. I think what had to happen was um, I had a really big soundstage in my head Hmm. because I had this education. Yeah. You know, I knew how to write for an orchestra. I, I knew how to, and I had been to Miami. I had lived in Miami. I'd worked in South America. I knew I don't know how much I knew, but I was comfortable with a lot of percussion. Yeah. And if you listen to the records starting there, but particularly after that, that's what you start to hear. Yeah. You start to hear a lot of percussion. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of orchestra. Yeah. But not necessarily conventional orchestra. And that's that was the combination of those instruments with the mountain instruments, the dulcimers, and of course, at the center, a lot of the songs was the piano. Yeah, which obviously I was a piano player, so that was comfy. Yeah, and then you had a sophisticated enough background to carry his lyrics, which got better and better as the, he, the, the, the lyrics mean, got outrageous. They got incredible, and uh, that's the thing I miss about him the most is, hmm. you know, what would he be writing? Because the lyric, his lyric writing was just getting otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. So you produced other records, I mean, other artists Yeah, as well. I did. I, I dabbled, you know. The only other real success I had, I did produce a couple of really successful records for the group for him. Oh, yeah. Including one that went gold. Yeah. And so that helped me as well to get, and I did a Bruce Carroll record, and I produced cuts on many artists, you know, because yeah. this is when the, the game began to change and you would get multiple producers. You know, you wouldn't have a producer, you'd have three or four producers, and people would try to find the right, or producers were writing their own stuff, and then they would produce that song on the artist. Yeah, you know, Keith Thomas was doing a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Keith was a guy that I kept track of because I really admired what he was doing, and it was completely different from what I was doing. Hmm. So I, I tried to keep track of what he was doing just to, as a kind of a, if, touchstone of excellence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I remember some of those records. They were fantastic. Well, the record he did uh, with uh, the uh, Miss America. Who? You know, Miss America. Uh, The the, the black singer. Oh, uh, yes. I know who you're talking Uh, about. Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams. That song... Save the best, Save for, the best last. for last, man. It's the perfect. It's perfect. It's so good. There's nothing you can do to it, it, it that is wouldn't so harm. Good. You can't change one note without diminishing it. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. So if you have something like that in your repertoire, there's almost you almost have this feeling like if you have a perfect cut, which I'm sure Keith wouldn't regard it as such, but if you have a perfect cut like that, then you kind of go, okay, well then. Now what? If nothing else happens, at least I did that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the unique things about you and your career with Rich is that, I mean, a lot of producers like to be known for, I did a record with this person, record for that person, record for this person. But you guys made nine records together. and Yeah. I mean, kind of the length, I mean, the length of his whole career. Pretty much until um, he came to me at the end. um, And we didn't have a falling out, but we had a dis, there was never a falling out. But we had a disagreement musically. He pl- he came and played me a Bob Dylan record, which had been made from uh, this period in Dylan's career where everything was really loosely bound. Yeah. 
before the Christian era because yeah. those records were they didn't sound like pop records, but they did sound like everybody knew the song. <laughs> but there was a time where the records were really loose. Yeah. Like it sounded like he'd met a tambourine player in a gas station on the way there and said, hey, come on, we're making a record. And Rich loved that stuff. Yeah. And so he played me a couple of songs from one of those records. I don't remember which one. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, it, it sounds to me like they're just getting ready to rehearse. And he said to me, it sounds to me like it's a record. And I said, well, I can't help you make a record like that. I will never be able to say that's okay. Um, I would always want it to be, quote, better than that. Although it, it isn't a question of better, but just, you know what I mean, more yeah. finished. And so um, we didn't really conclude anything at the time. But, I, but then I did get a call from the label saying, you know, so he wants to make this record with this, the band, but we're worried that that may go off the rails. So would you executive produce it and try to keep at least? And I said, well, I, I don't really know how that would roll, how that would work out, but I can at least make sure that they don't go over budget, <laughs> you know, and so... That's what we worked out, was I kind of had a more administrative role. And then um, I don't really know if the record was any good or not, because I only listened to it a couple of times, not out of any resentment, but it just is, it, when I listened to it the first time, it just didn't seem that interesting to me. I was ready for it to kind of blow my socks off because he had talked about something that I really could admire, which was a kind of a loose, organic gritty, soulful thing. But that record didn't come off that way to me. So um, I really didn't know what was going to happen uh, if we would make another record together or not because he changed labels. He went over to Word. I didn't have much of a relationship with Word. I'd done a few things for them, but not much. So I thought, well, that might be that. But then he called me, Rich called me, uh, about two weeks, two or three weeks before he died, and he said he wanted to make a record together. So I guess at some point he went, you know, maybe that, maybe I want to make peace with whatever. Because once you reach a certain point, anybody is going to be some kind of compromise. Hmm. What I brought to it was, uh, uh, well, it was just different, you know. But at least we were going to get a record. <laughs> and we were we were on a path. Yeah. The records were definitely getting better. Oh, man. Rarely yeah. is there such a defined... Such a clear path. Just, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. They just keep getting better and better. Yeah, so I think what he what he wanted to do is say... It, but, and the other thing that I really respect about his decision at the end was he hadn't had much input. You know, the truth is he, he didn't play a big role in the records. Hmm. He wasn't around very much. He would leave for long periods of time. Long. You know, he would show up sometimes in the morning and then I wouldn't see him all day. Where would he be? I don't know. Giving a, some guy a tambourine? <laughs> uh, you know, I think sometimes he was, he was drinking. Uh, I think sometimes he was just with friends just because mm -hmm. he, he had left Nashville from, by that point. Mm -hmm. So he was just hanging out with pals. And uh, I don't think he, the studio kind of intimidated him a little bit. Hmm. It wasn't home to him at all. And so we would, I would work on stuff really wishing he was there because I wouldn't have any way of knowing if he was going to, how he was going to respond. And uh, sometimes, you know, like sometimes by step, he really had no idea what was going to go. I mean, he kind of cut, sometimes he cut through Dulcimer part. And I think the next time he heard the track was when he came in and sang a vocal, and it was pretty much up and running by then, you know. Man, that's a, and that's so much work. It's so much work, yeah. And what if he just said, well, I don't like that. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and one time he did, it was a fabulous memory I have of him where, and I am ready for the storm, which he, he the original version of that he did not like at all. And so we 
which is another big percussion thing. And so, and in fact, I flew a guy up from Miami to play on it. And uh, I said, well, it's I'm ready for the storm. So I said, well, what do you think? He sat down, listened to it. And he said, sounds to me like I'm ready for a cocktail. <laughs> Instead of I'm ready for a storm, which is just his way of saying, I don't, I don't like it, but I'm going to leave now. Yeah. So not to say it was hard to work with. In some ways, that's easy to work with because it's better than somebody who hovers. Yeah, it's not micromanaging. It's not micromanaging. But I wished he had been around more. Yeah. Huh. So then he had a chance to make a record where he had a lot more influence. Yeah. And I think maybe he just decided, well, it's easier to just offload a lot of that to somebody else. <laughs> Man, that is so fascinating. So, it, well, for people who are really nerds on his records, but. Well, you know. which I am. Yeah, okay. But I also think just it's something, I mean, that's a unique relationship that you guys made so many records together. And any, any, you were two very creative, you know, very passionate people. And the fact that you could work together that long is, there's going to be stories. So, well, we never talked about music, you know, or very rarely. Um, I mean, I think I wrote about that in the thing for the concert that you guys did. We rarely talked about music. That was not what our relationship was about at all. Hmm. We, first of all, we weren't really friends in a conventional sense. What we were, were, um, I'm not sure if there's a single word to describe it because the relationship was so intimate, but highly compressed. Hmm. Yeah. So you have a period of time where you're really uh, working together closely, and then you break apart again and you don't even talk to each other for eight months. Yeah. Or once or twice, I would fly out and see a show. And then back together again. But it never felt funny. It always felt perfectly yeah. comfortable and just pick it right back up and, and go back to yeah. work. But we had long, long, endless conversations. Uh, it, while he was loath to, to, to weigh in on the music, he had no problem hanging out to talk about politics, women, movies, uh, the church, the Christian music business, other artists by name. <laughs> you know, he was highly opinionated. We'd have long, yeah. long talks about this stuff. And they were fascinating because he had a great mind. Yeah. So it was like playing ping pong with the Chinese. <laughs> you know, you got to bring your A game. You got to bring it. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear the conversations that you guys would have. In well, I would just try to talk him off the ledge because he was so <laughs> uncompromising, as you can imagine. But he would also kind of help me to see how sort of placid I was about some things. Hmm. You know, he would help me to realize that, no, that you need to be a little bit more exorcised hmm. about these things, you know. That's fascinating. And he was also, uh, uh, I will say this, he was, he had this character he would play from time to time, called the pissed-off redneck. That's what I call him. And and it was an actual character. It was a little bit like Yosemite Sam. Uh-huh. And he'd, get, he'd arch his back and stick his chest out, put his hands in his pockets. It was pure Indiana redneck. And he'd pace. He'd walk around the studio. He, he was doing a character. And he would go off on some subject and just... Blue streak line of expletives and just hold forth on Republicans or oil companies or women or something and Christian music. And I, you'd never laughed at it so hard in your life. It was so funny. But I noticed that you couldn't get him to do it very often. He, I think he kind of had an awareness that. I don't want to uncork the genie too much. That there was a, in him a real anger, hmm. which is just typical of the prophetic mind. Prophets are pissed off. That's where they get a lot of their fuel. Yeah. And he had some of that. And so was, there were many times I said, come on, man, do the pissed off redneck. No, no. Can't do it. 
Then when you least expect it, he'd <laughs> fire him up. You know, God, it was hilarious. Ah, I, I, I cried. I laughed so hard. Man. Okay, here's one more story about Rich. All right, yeah. I have other things I want to talk to you about, but I love these stories. This so is a big one, keep man. Going. This is the big Rich story. So we had finished a record about 2 o'clock in the morning and um, locked the studio up. And this was out at, uh, i tell you the record it was. It was uh, Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth. Mm-hmm. And we were out at the, the gold mine. And Richard, the studio manager, had graciously stayed up to lock everything up. And he lived at the studio up above. And um, I'm home. I drive home. I get home about 3.30 in the morning. Rich has uh, driven to a hotel. He's going to fly out the next day or that day. About 4 o'clock, the phone rings. And it's Rich. And he says, you got to go back out to the studio. I said, I do not. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I've left a notebook out there. And I said, well, uh, you know, I'll have Richard get it, you know, in a few hours when he wakes up. He said, no. And he got very, very panicky. He said, it's a private notebook. And you have to go out and you have to get that notebook. And you have to destroy it and promise not to look in it. And I'm just sitting on the phone going, wow. And I said, uh, okay, I'll do it. So we hung up, and I drove all the way back out to Franklin, and, or Brentwood, and I got Richard up. That was a fun moment. And I went and got the notebook. I found the notebook. And I knew that Rich wrote a page of prose every day. Hmm. As a habit. So I assumed that, that he had many of these notebooks. And this was just the one that he was on at the time. And I went out and sat in the car with the notebook on my lap. And I thought, if I sit here another 30 seconds, I'm going to open it up. There's no way I can sit here for very long and not open it. And partly I, I wondered, you know... Probably stuff about me in it, you know, making the record or whatever. But, and I thought, okay. So I just drove to a Kroger and threw it in the Dipsy dumpster in the back, and I never looked. (laughs) But there was something in that notebook, man, because he was, he said, You're the only person I can trust to do it. So I said, Okay, I'll do it. Hmm. Man, that's wild. Well, so you guys made. Liturgy Legacy, was that the last record you produced? That's the last full record we did, yeah. And you as a producer, was that? did you yeah. do much more after that? No. Uh, shortly after that, I got sick, you know, okay. and that's when I got, had to make a new life. So tell us, tell us about that. Well, I have to say, I, I have, uh, I don't talk about it very much because mm. it, I have some PTSD about it, sure, and so yeah. it's not the illness. It's just a number of things happen at the same time. But I'll I'll basically compress it so that I don't have to linger on it. Sure. Um, I I got uh, somebody in, one of the guys in for him mentioned uh, you have the same cough you had the last record, hmm. and I thought well that can't be good, <laughs> so I ended up starting going to doctors and through a series of of events, um, it uh, it turned out that I had cancer, but a really weird uh, expression of it, uh, which took a long time to figure out, and nobody really could figure it out until they removed it. Nobody was really sure what was going on because it was so unlikely. And uh, so at that time, uh, I had to take very aggressive treatment. Um the result of which my life was saved, but I was never going to be the same person. Mm. And I would certainly never be able to be a professional musician again, because people generally don't realize how physical that is. It's very physical work, uh, particularly if you're working on records all day long. Uh, it's, it's, there's an almost an athleticism to it. So, um, and producing as well. So, um, I had to make a new life. At the same time, I got divorced. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and at the same time, my dad had a heart attack. Within 90 days of all of this. So, and so I found myself in this house alone. Uh, having had to, I, I mean, I had to buy the house back, you know, everything. So um, at that point, I was just completely shell-shocked, yeah. you know, living my whole life had been blown up. One really remarkable thing happened, which I don't know if you would want me to share this, but it deserves to be shared, and that is uh, one day when I was here alone, and I don't think I had started chemotherapy, but I was I had I was I had to get better to take the chemotherapy, mm. which is wow. kind of typical, you know. Okay. But particularly what I was going to take, there was like the the guy explained to me, this is where it kills you. And then he moved his, his hand like a half an inch to the left. He said, this is where we're going to take you. Wow. All right. So, um, and there was a knock on my door and it was John Mays hmm. and Mark Hammond. And I think John or Mark, one of them had a big SUV. They hadn't called. They'd just come. And John walked in at my house and he said, pack up your crap. You're coming to live with me. What? That's a church, man. Oh. Yeah. So I went and lived with the Mays family (laughs) until I could get, well, I mean, it was was unbelievable generosity and love. And that's just the kind of man he is. That's, that's. You know, and the more you learn about it, the more you learn. Well, that was just one chapter. You know, that was add that to the list of glory. We're all going to be shining his shoes in heaven. I can assure you that. <laughs> so, just to decide to include that, but but anyway, I had to find a new life, and I knew one thing I could do was I could sit my ass in a chair and write because it didn't take any physical effort. You know, so I just wrote chapter one. Hmm. So that's how that turn happened, because <laughs> I had to do something. Well, then you ended up, I mean, you wrote four novels, right? Yeah. So you spent on then, a, I mean, you built a whole new career as an author. Well, unbeknownst to me, I was building a career, but I didn't really intend. The whole thing is, in retrospect, I didn't choose to be a writer. Most people who are successful writers really chose to be writers. Like musicians, you don't just stumble into a pro- successful career in music you 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 want that and it it's like a flame that burns enough for you to get good you yeah. know um i'm not talking about being a recording artist but you know being like a session player like guys like us who we made our livings actually with this level of expertise beyond charisma <laughs> uh i'm not i didn't mean that to be yeah, dismissive no. charisma is a I genuine just, yeah expertise. i laughed at my lack of charisma yeah me yeah. too yeah you know, i'm not charismatic <laughs> either but i i could do some things we were, that's how we survive. So I never decided to be a musician. It, I mean, to be a writer, it was just desperation. It didn't feel desperate. It just felt like it's something I could turn to. Hmm. Um, and in the, I don't even know how to describe how fortunate I was. In the same way that I was fortunate in music, because you have to have luck, you you know, and some of the luck you make, of course, by Lee. I grew up on a cattle ranch in Kansas. If I had stayed there, it wouldn't have mattered how good I got, you know. Yeah. I had to go to North Texas and find out I wasn't very good. Then I had to go to Miami and get, have that happen so I could be discovered. And then I had to be willing to move to Nashville. So there's, you have to get in the way of luck to an extent. Yeah. So meanwhile, I had written this book and um, I finished it. And a guy who worked at Word in publishing, uh, he he had some writers who wanted to make a musical out of a novel, and they needed to get the rights for that book. It was a mainstream book. It wasn't a Christian book. And so they flew to New York to meet with this agent to negotiate the rights of this book because the author had passed away, and they were basically representing the estate now. And he came back and told me about this meeting in New York and how what a great meeting and the people were really nice and not what he'd expected, you know, and uh, not hoity-toity, but they were very approachable and very, 
you know, easy to talk to and they'd had a good meeting. And I said, well, was it a good enough meeting that you feel like you could deliver my novel to them? <laughs> you know, do you have enough uh, um, good vibes with them that you might be able to do? He said, well, I don't know, but I'm, I'm happy to make a call. And they said, yeah, send it on. So I sent this novel. He sent the novel for me. Hmm. And at this time, um, I'm living in a room in this house in a downstairs unused bedroom. And the house is almost empty. And I'm just in, there's little here besides the bed and a few this and this is and that's. And I have a bucket between me and the bathroom because I can't make it to the bathroom because I'm now in the middle of this hardcore chemotherapy. And it's Sunday morning about 1030. And I'm just laying in bed. Just, you know, in that state. And the phone rang, rings, and it's a lady called Jane Distel, who is, I, did, I had no idea at the time, but who's a big freaking deal. <laughs> and uh, she represents five Pulitzer Prize winners. Wow. And she said, Reed, it's just super New York, man. You know, it's like a, like a uh, uh, Woody Allen character. The accent, everything, you know. Read, I've read your book. I love it. I want to represent it and you. We're going to make money together. We're going to make a lot of money. I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow. I would know. The first thing she said was, is it too early to call? And I, in that book, I've dedicated in my thanks for her, I said, nobody knows, but she and I, the meaning of the, but I said, no, Jane, it's not too early to call. Because what she had done was just throw me a lifeline. Hmm. And that book was sold at auction, which was a thing I didn't know existed until then. Yeah. And I suddenly had a career. but I Which is when a couple of different publishers all try to buy the rights to. Uh, you have to have more than one to have an auction. Yeah. And sometimes you have none. <laughs> but somebody had made a six-figure auction. She, she was real canny. She, she made people read the book in her office, which created a buzz. She didn't send it out. She said, if you want to read this book, you have to come to my office and you have to read it in a sitting. And you can't, and you have to sign a non-disclose and all that stuff. So there was a little bit of a buzz. And somebody came and read it from a major publisher and made a six-figure offer right on the spot. And that's when she said, well, let's have an auction. So we had this auction. And suddenly I had a career. And the sold into a bunch of languages and a movie studio bought the rights and but the funny thing about it was I had not decided to be a writer and I wasn't particularly well equipped for a writing career. Hmm. All I knew was that I had to write now and and it ended up being a life that didn't suit me at all. Hmm. So after then the weird thing was uh well I'll just end this phase of it with the weirdest day of my life and the second big turn, which was I was miserable um, and I was 100 pages into a book and I had signed this really big contract with HarperCollins and it was hundreds of thousands of dollars and I was completely miserable. And I had turned in these 100 pages and my editor who was also the editor of Michael Crichton and some other really big people, uh, Elmore Leonard. Um, she said, well, these are the best 100 pages I've gotten in years, I maybe ever, which made me feel a lot more pressure, not less. Yeah. This is the thing that, that people don't understand is that being successful can actually be a kind of a prison, you know, now you can't screw up, you know. Yeah. But that wasn't why I was miserable. Because the next hundred pages have to be even better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she actually said, that, well, I don't want to say, because I said this, she might, somebody might mention this to her somehow, some weird way. Because she meant for the best, yeah. only for the best. She meant to encourage me. And, and it was encouraging in a way, because you do worry that maybe it's not even very good. So you have to balance. So more power to her. Probably if she'd have told me it sucked, I would have. That would have been worse. <laughs> so who knows what she really thought? She was probably just doing her job. You know what I mean? 
So anyway, um, this the last thirty seconds. This is the artistic self torture. Oh man! Yeah, just yeah, just re- put that on repeat and just that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Right, second guessing, there. triple yeah. guessing, quadruple guessing. So, um, I the thing that was killing me. Two things were killing me. One was how solitary it was. Yeah, the music business is not solitary. That's what's so cool about it. Yeah, the coolest thing about making a record is lunch. It's <laughs> so my favorite part. It's the favorite part. It's everyone's favorite part. Yeah. Where do you want to go? Mas tacos. Let's go. Yeah. And you're just hanging out with a bunch. And you're of just hanging out you with your favorite people and, yeah. in the world. You know. And so I was just in a room all day long. And if you're a real writer, that doesn't bother you. Yeah. But if you're not, it's hellish. Yeah. And the other thing was that this book had gotten very dark. And there's a, there's a phrase in writing called tragic inevitability. And the term means that when the story reaches a point in which you are committed to a tragedy, hmm. if you do anything else at the end, it's a dishonest. Yeah. And I had reached a point of tragic inevitability by 100 pages. It's going to be about a 350-page book. I knew where I was going. Yeah. And I wasn't proud of it. Hmm. It was going to be dark. And it wasn't going to be redemptive. And it couldn't be redemptive. Because I had reached the point of tragic inevitability. Hmm. I could have somehow tried to, you know, pump air in the ending, but it just would have been false. Yeah. And I I was not proud of where it was going, but that's where it was going. And it was just... I'm sure if I had a therapist, they could unpack that for me, you know. Well, that's where you wanted it to go, isn't it, Reed? You know, otherwise it wouldn't have gone there, you know. So, but I knew I wasn't going to publish that book. Yeah. But I was committed, and I'd taken all this money. So I uh, I sat down with my wife, and I just explained everything to her. She knew, you know, that I'd been unhappy for a while with it. And I said, well... How would you feel about me not doing this anymore? <laughs> I said, Ann, I'm going to have to give the money back. And she was just a champ. I mean, she was so great. She just said, you know, we'll figure it out. Don't yeah. worry about it. We'll figure it out. So this is where it gets really trippy. I walk into my this office right here, mm-hmm. and I open my laptop, and I'm going to send my agent this email. She doesn't know any of this. Because, yeah. you know, you keep all this secret in your mind, your, tor- your torment. Yeah. And and I I open my email program, and it checks my email, as they do. Yeah. And an email is delivered to me by my agent. And the email says, great news. Reed has just been selected by Publishers Weekly. Uh, the uh, best... Uh, the rising star of that year. <laughs> and in the thriller category, which is what I was writing. Yeah. And I go, Diane, can you come in here? <laughs> Am I seeing what I'm seeing? And also CC'd a reply by my agent going, this is fantastic. I can, we'll use this on the new book. This is great. I can't wait to see. We're, great things are in store. And I had decided to blow the whole thing up and was writing that blow-it-up email when that came down the pike. Oh, my goodness. And so I just said, well, I'm going to close this and sleep on it. Maybe this is destiny saying, don't be a fool. (laughs) But you know what? The next day I was even more certain. Hmm. And so I sent the email and just thought, well, the phone will ring shortly. (laughs) You know, and it did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, in that case, I walked off uncertain what was going to happen. Hmm. So what what happens that next morning? How do you wake up and what do you do with your go for a walk? Well, do you, do you get, are you panicked and looking for more work? Or are you I've never worried about money. Mm-hmm. I think if I was worried about money, I would have just powered through it, powered through my misery. I don't know exactly why. Part of it is I grew up relatively well off, so I didn't have that. I mean, we weren't wealthy, but I never had to worry about money as a kid. 
obviously college was a breeze, four bucks an hour. <laughs> um, so, but for whatever reason, I'm just not wired to worry about money. I think it's a wiring thing. I've always kind of believed that something would work out. And it, it, it has, you know. Uh, I mean, I certainly am less prosperous than I would have been, I would assume, but it doesn't bother me. So the, the, the anxiety was not, it's, you know, I once uh, heard this guy on the radio, his name was Steve. And he talked about alternate Steve. <laughs> and it was the hint, it was the life he would like to have lived that he couldn't live because he lived the life he did live. And in his case, it was he was an academic, and he'd always wondered what it had been like if he'd have been a practitioner. I don't remember what he did, but the equivalent for us would be instead of working musicians, we went in a university and we taught music. And so you fantasize in your mind this whole life. Yeah. Oh, man, that'd be great, man. I'd wear like a jacket and have an office and smoke a pipe and students would come around and listen to my stories and I'd have a 401k and, <laughs> or, and uh, yeah, you know, and, and uh, health insurance and, yeah. uh -huh. oh, I'd have summers off and wouldn't it be great? That's a, that was his yeah. alternate Steve. And that's the thing you wonder about is the alternate read. Oh man. You know, because every time you say yes to anything big, you say no to many more things. Yeah. And particularly if you're halfway talented, there's always something you could do. Yeah. So that's the thing that I think plagued me for a while and still does to an extent is, all right, well, what could I have done, you know? But you just, you only get the one life. Yeah. If, so, if now is where I'm supposed to be wise, this is where things go badly off the rails. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to drop some profound. Yeah, now we're supposed to wrap this right up with now. some deep water. <laughs> <laughs> or we have reached tragic inevitability. Tragic inevitability, yeah. yes. Uh, so now you share an office with Steve. You're upstairs from Brown at Lipscomb. Yeah. How long How long has it been since you let go of that, that book deal? Well, that was uh, 2008. Okay. Uh, or Yeah, I think 2008. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then I started to do some consulting I thought maybe I would have another book in me, maybe a nonfiction book, but write it on my own terms. But I really discovered that I just didn't like writing that much. Mm. Um, I didn't do much for a while. You know, by then I fortunately was in a position where I could kind of um, take some time and think. Yeah. And at that time I was living part of the year in Florida and I spent more, more and more time down there. And I found just a catharsis of walk, walking the beach and thinking about the rest of my life and, and, and also come to terms with my physical limitations, which I began to feel. Mm. You know, as I get older, I, I'm, you can't tell by looking at me, which is weird. But everything is hard. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm probably, I'm 61, but probably physically I'm 75. So... Fortunately, mentally, I'm not. Although I'm still not as clear as I probably would have been just because the physical strain. Um, so meanwhile, I had a chance to teach. And, so, you know, um, the folks at Lipscomb reached out to me and said, would you be interested in coming over and doing something? And I said, well, I'll try it once if you try it. Let's not make any commitments. But I'll try it and you, you'll, you see how you feel about it. And it went really well. And so then we, just this last um, semester, they have decided to make the course that I teach a requirement for everybody in all the arts, mm. all the fine arts. So film, everything from painting, sculpture, music, film, theater, graphic arts, all those people will go through this course. So mostly what I'm doing right now is trying to figure out how to scale it up from 15 people to 150 people because I've been teaching it to 15. And next semester, 2018, it'll have 150. So I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work. I don't oh, man. And what do you, what's the course on? The course is a course in career creativity. And it, it came to me when um, writing seemed to go more easily than I would have thought. Some of this was because I grew up with a blind mother. This was a huge game changer for me, huge. Uh, because I grew up exp 
uh, describing the world. Huh. I First of all, I grew up on a cattle ranch where it was a mile from my house to a house. Yeah. So it was very quiet. And it, at night, it was very dark. I could, you could see the Milky Way in the winter on a real, real clear night if it wasn't a, like those last one-eighth moon, one-quarter moon, those when you didn't have much moon. You could just actually see the Milky Way as a haze across the sky. That's wild. Yeah, that's gone, of course. Even, even I'm sure that farm itself is or that ranch, I'm sure, isn't that dark anymore. But um, So growing up in that kind of quiet and with this brilliant woman uh, who happened to be blind, she was uh, extremely literate. She'd been an English major in, in college, and she was a lawyer. She had become a lawyer. So even though I lived on a cattle ranch, both my parents were lawyers, so we were sort of like gentlemen farmers. Mm-hmm. But it was for real. I mean, we were real ranchers, but they would just drive 30 miles to town and be lawyers. And then, but the ranch was a working ranch. Man. And that was my, when you're, when I was eight or nine years old, I would go in the summer, I would go Sunday to Sunday without speaking to anyone outside of my family. Cause there's nobody, what are you going to do? It's a mile. You're not driving at night. You're not years riding old. your bike down the cold no, side. There's nowhere to go. So it's a very quiet, thoughtful, Life, but I, because of my mom's curiosity. I mean, for example, she loved art museums, huh. and became an artist. In fact, I'll show you some of the work. There's some of her work is in this room. Um, wow. Um, all by touch, because she wasn't just legally blind; she was in the dark. Um. From so, birth or no? She okay. was in an accident when she was 23 years old. Um. So growing up describing the world to someone, particularly someone who is really smart and clued into nuance of language. I don't know if you have a friend where, um, this is what I really liked about Amy, by the way, um, on those long bus rides, because uh, she reminded me of my mom in this way. When I would talk to my mom, and you may have a friend like this, where they get everything, like the little pause that you make, the tiny change in inflection, the just where you lean on a word a little bit and you mean something by that. Mm-hmm. There's maybe you have one person in your world who is just on your channel, and they get everything. And so losing my mom was like, I was losing that person. But that's what I loved about traveling with Amy was because she listens that way. Hmm. And, but she's not blind, which makes her even more kind of unusual. Yeah. So that, I think, is the reason I was able to write. Oh, well, anyway, getting back to this creativity course. Um, yeah, it was, why was I able to write without any training at all? And by the way, Michael Smith played a big role in this as well, because when I came to Nashville, Michael couldn't read music, but he was obviously a really good musician. Hmm. Well, I was really well trained, but there were a lot of things that I couldn't do that Nashville musicians were doing. Hmm. And I thought, as a writer, this is my chance to be like in a garage band. I'm not going to get training. I'm going to be like Michael Smith. I'm going to just go out and do that thing. Yeah. And... And it went really well. And I, when I met with my editor in New York, I said, why did you like my book so much? Because when I went into his office, there were all these books, all these books uh, that had been hand-delivered by agents, not a slush pile, but books that had managed to get to his office. And I said, what are all these books? And he says, that's the no pile. And then he pointed to my book and he said, that's the yes pile. I said, well, how did that happen? Because these books here that are so, they, I assume this is somebody's MFA project. It's been mm-hmm. workshopped. It's been loved on. And he just rolled his eyes. He said, man, I hope I never read another one of those as long as I live. And I said, all right, what is it about mine? He said, because you sound like somebody. Hmm. And I knew exactly what he meant. There was a voice and that trumped what I probably what I didn't know. <laughs> you sound like somebody, someone in particular, not like an important person, someone in particular. Yeah. And 
I think what happened was by being a musician, there's, that had prepared me to do anything creatively because I had found a voice. And that was proved to be completely translatable. Hmm. So that not, obviously I had to know something about writing, but I had read great novels my whole life and I had absorbed a lot. But it was mostly about having a voice. So then when I started to think about creativity, I realized there's an enormous amount of common ground here. That the things that we do, the domain of action we work in, whether it's music or writing or painting or whatever it is, that's the technique. But underneath all of that is this common language of creativity that we can think about and we can get better at. That was the other thing I had to convince myself is, of is, is it something you can, you can get better at? And it turned out it is. Mm-hmm. So I love that. I love getting in a room with 15, 19-year-olds. And by the way, they all have to be freshmen. <laughs> I don't want them by the, if they're juniors. I would take junior in high school if I could get them, but freshmen in college is what I would like. And preferably the first, I take a picture, how many of you, this is your first hour of college? And there's always several. And I take a picture of them and I send it to them and I go, you'll be fascinated by this one day. This is me, my first hour of college. <laughs> to talk about creativity as a skill that you can improve. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing right now. How fun. It is really fun. Back of Come classes. on, man. Anytime you want to. I will. Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon. All right. Deal. Fascinating conversation, huh? I have really enjoyed getting to know Reed uh, this past year. And yeah, just uh, it was a real honor to get to sit with him. So he talked about his mother and the art that she made. And when he was telling me that during the interview, I thought that that meant she did some sort of uh, painting or something. Um, But she's a sculptor. And what, uh, as soon as we were done, he said, you want to see some of that art? I said, yes. And he reaches up and he grabs these wooden birds off of his bookshelf. And he's, he's got them all over the house. There's a number of them. Um, not like a creepy amount, but like a, an art, a well-decorated amount. <laughs> but uh, these, these carved wooden birds that are so precise and accurate and uh, just beautiful. Uh, that His blind mother carved i was standing there holding this and it's so kind of overwhelming that she did this and he goes i know it's kind of spooky right i was like yes it is kind of spooky i wish i had a better word for it because that two writers you think we'd have a better word but it just doesn't seem like a thing that's possible it was beautiful anyway um Really, thank you, Reed. That was that was great. Uh, all right, guys, please visit everybodypivots.com for updates, back episodes, and or to get in touch and say hey. Also, a huge shout out to Tom Franklin, one of our new patrons on Patreon. If you're interested in helping to keep this podcast happening, you can pitch in a couple bucks a month over there. Uh, you can find all that stuff on the website as well. Everybodypivots.com. All right. Uh, thank you guys again for listening so much. Just love getting to do this. Now go do something awesome.